Welcome to the Future Face. The term smart city has been kicking around now for about a decade. When we began this show, the term was a staple of headline news, especially in Toronto as Google's Sidewalk Labs arrived with the promise of reimagining the city's waterfront as a kind of technological utopia, the first of its kind, with automated infrastructure, smart gadgets embedded in the very fabric of the neighborhood, and, of course, sensors everywhere, grabbing and interpolating data from wherever they could and from whoever they could. Some were thrilled by the possibility, some were entirely creeped out by the prospect. In the end, the plan folded. Today, we don't say smart city or smart technology as much. It always felt kind of loaded, and now it carries a certain amount of baggage. But the promise for communities of harnessing data and technology to solve a specific issue, address a problem, or provide resources and communication is still very much there to be realized. For cities, towns, northern and indigenous communities, regardless of geography or population. It all depends on how you go about it. Beyond the buzzwords, what is the future of, well, future fixes? You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is Season 3 of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions, and take you to places large and small, from coast to coast to coast. John Lawrence is a freelance journalist, author, and Spacing Magazine senior editor. He's been following the data and tech space as it applies to cities for some time now. His research culminated in the book... Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias, for which he won the Writer's Trust of Canada Balsillie Prize for Public Policy. We asked John about the history of the smart city movement, the rise and fall of sidewalk labs in Toronto, and the lessons communities in Canada can learn from it all. So, John, the book is Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias, I thought we'd just begin by uh, maybe you you tell us a story about uh, how how this book came together. So you have to kind of go back to like the mid 2010s. And I started getting these assignments about like the use of data in urban planning and, you know, municipal administration and so on. And there was sort of smart city technology, but not as kind of packaged as an idea as it is, you know, as, as it subsequently became. And Those stories really, I found very interesting. Like I ended up talking to a guy who was working for Michael Bloomberg, who went around and started collecting like these big databases that were basically full of static information about municipal addresses in New York City. 
building inspections and fire code violations and all of this kind of bureaucratic stuff. And then they kind of hammered these databases together and started querying them and seeing whether they could find patterns. So they began to see patterns, for example, in like the type of constellation of uh, conditions that were predictive of a fire, right? So you, they, you know, they could work backwards and say, okay, so, you know, 45 Fifth Avenue had a fire and, you know, what was ticked off on at that address and then looking for sort of common denominators and other places that had a fire and then using those analytics to say, okay, well, if we find that these particular buildings with these common attributes have fires, then, you know, we can warn others with those kind of attributes. So that was the thinking and it, and it was pretty kind of rudimentary at that point, but then it sort of accelerated I and mean, there were more and more of these applications using different types of sensors to track air quality in public spaces, for example. And then Sidewalk comes along in Toronto in 2017. And it kind of, you know, and then I sort of became incredibly involved in reporting on Sidewalk. And by by the time Sidewalk arrives, the smart city industry per se is about like seven or eight years old and has grown to quite a considerable size and is basically driven by a lot of sort of major tech suppliers like Cisco and IBM. And I think what Google and Sidewalk Labs wanted to do was kind of disrupt the smart city sector. And so they kind of were coming at it from a kind of a different point of view. And then I realized that this is a big thing and um, I wanted to do a lot more reporting on it. Yeah, I mean, we've been making these future fix shows since about 2019 when uh, Sidewalk Labs was not just a going concern, but kind of a preoccupation in terms of civic discourse in Toronto. Now we we kind of avoid even saying smart city because it's become, the term has become kind of fraught. And uh, I think Sidewalk Labs was was part of that, uh, where we, we all went on this journey and uh, we're not really sure right. where we ended up, a lot of us. Uh, you, you, say in the, you say in the book that uh, we never found out yeah. what Sidewalk Labs was selling. Is is that because we weren't meant to know, or because you know it it was unfocused from the from the get go? It, it, it was a lab. The the operative word in the the company's name was lab, right? They were there was a lot of innovation. They were testing things. Uh, you know, Google's corporate culture is to fast fail, right? So they they try something, they abandon it, they move on, and that was the whole premise. And I think that the reason that we didn't have too many specifics. There were some specifics about, you know, sort of curb mapping, for example, and use of autonomous vehicles for delivery, parcel delivery and that kind of thing. But I think that they were, I think the intention was to kind of discover it as they go. And also the whole premise of the Sidewalk Labs proposal was to collect this enormous amounts of data, like streaming data from all sorts of sources, and then make it available to developers. And so I think the model was not unlike the iPhone's app store or, you know, any of the app stores where the platform is available and then different software companies or, you know, entrepreneurs, or ventures, they would say, okay, well, we could do this with it or that with it and then, you know, make it available and, you know, commercialize it or whatever. Now, your point about not talking about smart cities is important and interesting. So I think that's more of a thing in the shouting radius of downtown Toronto than <laughs> elsewhere, because we had this kind of traumatic experience with sidewalk labs. But 
the industry is still like alive and kicking and generating huge sales. And I would also argue that, you know, because of the pandemic and because so much of our lives had to go online for this period of time and, you know, in many ways stayed online, that a lot of the ideas around smart cities and this, like this hyper connectivity um, and this use of big data became actually part of the way our cities function, except we just stopped calling it smart cities. So we sort of got there, but in a different way than I think the advocates and the big companies predicted. You also say that, uh, you know, the sidewalk experiment, it inspires a reconsideration of the promise of the smart city. You know, what What was that promise when the we first started sort of kicking this term around, like you say, in the early 2010s. And uh, what does that reconsideration require? I think the promise was this, that if you instrument the city sufficiently, like you put all of these sensors all over the place and create these massive kind of analytics, cloud-based applications that can sort of hear, in a sense, what's happening in the city and then say, okay, well, we know we need to do these things or that, those things like to our, uh, you know, transportation system or our energy system and use all that data to kind of optimize these systems. I think that was the vision. So I think that that idea became kind of, it, it became apparent that it was not a real idea, that there's so much activity in the city and there's so many data points and so much fluidity that it's very difficult to kind of say, to rationally say, okay, well, we're going to gather this information, how traffic is going everywhere and how it interacts with other systems and, you know, create a set of decision-making frameworks that allow us to improve this system or that system. So that was the vision. And I think that Sidewalk sort of tried to kind of bring that to its apotheosis or um, it's, it's like its highest expression because they were, you know, it's Google and they're so into information of all sorts and slicing it and dicing it. Then we have Cambridge Analytica, we have all of the privacy issues. Then through the pandemic, we have like all the craziness around social media and all of that stuff. And I think that the reconsideration is that, you know, digital information is not the panacea that people think it is. We're talking two weeks into chat GPT-4, right? Where, you know, again, we're talking about these like seismic changes in our digital environments, which will have an impact on the way cities work. But it's very, to my mind, it's very unclear what that will be, right? And and that original promise, which was very rationalist, it was like hyper-rationalist, saying here's the messiness of the city and here are these things that we can solve with data that's i think has been debunked i understand the promise you're a journalist you love data uh, you know city planners love data oftentimes the criticism is that no one's collecting this we we should have this right. uh, but uh I, I think the lesson that we should take from this and and that we did to a certain extent during the pandemic is that uh government should be doing this for themselves uh, right. at every level or Alternatively, that some people are are doing this sort of out of a, as a hobby or the goodness of their hearts or just out of pure curiosity, and that we could uh, we could leverage that uh, in positive ways rather than looking to uh, you know some kind of tech giant to to come and save us from ourselves. Right, and I think that that's important because I mean the tech giants are private corporations; they're they've got a profit motive, and so there is 
there are vested interests involved. But the other thing, just to, just to make a point about what we're talking about when we talk about data, you know, the the underlying idea with a lot of smart city technology is that it, we're not talking about statistics or traffic counts. We're talking about this very fluid cloud of digital data that is generated by our phones, by our, um, you know, as we move through public space, you know, you know, we leave these digital trails all over the place and, and that's the data that's getting scooped up. And so even something is said, you know, something fairly basic as a, like an air quality sensor at a high level of acuity, right? I mean, it's able to sort of track changes in emissions and this and that. And these are specific data points. It's like, it's, these are sort of, it's much more fluid than that. And the volume of it is so huge that it's kind of not possible for local government to kind of get into that business because it's just too much. Um, and this is what these huge tech companies have. They have a massive ability to store and analyze and slice and dice data that's very kind of granular. Multiple levels of government uh, at one point or another we're very energized and excited about the promise uh, of of this sidewalk labs. Uh, it cut across the political spectrum. Uh, people who were not natural political allies were, if if only tentatively, at at one point or another, they were all on board. And uh, I think now that that's all kind of gone away, in terms of governance and and data and technology at every level, what what was the lesson that we can take away from this sort of failed experiment? Well, I think that there are a couple of lessons. One is that if you're using these technologies to alter public spaces or urban systems or municipal systems, that the governance should ultimately lie with the public. And I'm not talking about creating like a committee of citizens for every little thing, right? But that that the governance of these things should be done in in or by the public sector in you know ways that we govern doctors and you know engineering standards for bridges and all of these things that that it's the responsibility of the state and of the collectivity to make sure that these systems are running in a way that has integrity um, and respects other forms of legislation and that kind of thing that's one big lesson the other big lesson that i see is that you know when i was doing the research for this book right I, you know i just found like tons and tons of examples of this that you know this type of smart city application that type of smart city application and i began to kind of divide them up into two broad buckets one is the type of technology that is brought to bear on some kind of technological or infrastructure system like the energy grid for example and others that are directed at human beings and if we could find smart grid solutions that will help us get more renewable energy into aging electrical grids i'm all for that it's that's that's an important thing to do and for all the criticism that smart city industry gets there's a lot of that kind of sustainability technology that is being sort of developed but if it's like directed at people and not just individual surveillance which is a huge problem but but even the type of systems where they're aggregating the movement of people through public space or in buildings or so on, that's much more problematic and requires, I think, a higher bar for regulators and for governance. Because, you know, we live in a city, we, we, there is some expectation that we can move freely without undue surveillance. I mean, we live in a very surveilled world, right? I mean, we can 
find out all sorts of things about people by doing searches and there's security cameras everywhere and so on. But we don't need to add to that all the time just because we can. And I think that one of the failings of Sidewalk Labs was that their whole system was premised on a high degree of surveillance of public space. And, you know, you just got asked the question, why? Like, what's what problem are we solving there? Like you say, you, you've poured over lots of examples and, and, and the book goes uh, beyond uh, the center of the universe here in Toronto. Uh, I wanted to ask you, in your research, when things work, what is working? And, and is it kind of, if not scalable or replicable in, in different municipalities, large and small? What did you see in your research that excited you in the world of data and tech? The place where I saw these ideas engaged with in the most kind of intelligent and farsighted way was in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands has four major cities. The national government has ministry for cities. They, you know, the cities are real partners in the way that that society functions. And they've done a lot of work with smart city technology, but it's sort of plugged into a broader set of approaches and ways of thinking about how to, you know, make those cities more sustainable. The Netherlands is mostly underwater, right? They have, you know, centuries relied on technology to allow them to live and to, you know, live below water level. And so they have a mature approach to technology. And so what I found was that there was a there was a high level of interest in experimenting with these technologies, but using them in very discrete ways and then actually finding out what a problem was and then applying technology to that problem as opposed to the other way around. Like where here at with Sidewalk Labs, you know, we had all these technologies and they were sort of searching for problems. And in the Netherlands, they don't put the cart before the horse. And the smart city agenda goes alongside other agendas like sustainable transportation and the circular economy. And so there's this sort of suite of ideas and ways of thinking and think tanks and accelerators and so on that are all they're looking at a whole bunch of different things about making cities more sustainable and the smart city tech is one part of that not sort of the whole thing that they're obsessed with to me it was a very compelling outlook given what we've learned since the the big boom of this kind of idea in, in 2010 as you say it's it's still going strong also given the challenges that we face you know climate change the pandemic mobility issues all that stuff if we can learn lessons as we go, uh, you know, look to look to best practices, look to proper governance models. Can we really leave these tools on the table? Um, this data and tech opportunities to try and tackle some of this stuff. Uh, for instance, I, I know you spent uh, a lot of time in the pandemic tracking effluence, basically, uh, to to see where COVID outbreaks might come. That, that seems like a, a handy tool. Yeah, no, no, it, it, they're they're handy tools. They're it's important to use them. I don't want to argue that we should all be luddites and hide from technology. Uh, you know, at various levels, right? I mean, so we found these these ways of tracking trace levels of COVID and sewage, which proved to be a very effective way of creating an early warning system for public health officials. The local governments could use all sorts of better technology, digital technology, to improve the way individuals, citizens, residents interact with local government, it's very, still very difficult. So, you know, there are lots of these discrete solutions that can be applied to making public policy work better for residents, for people. So 
it's important to say, let's do that. And then it's also important to say, okay, well, let's think hard about unintended consequences. Even if we can't sort of forestall all eventualities, we have to think about them and make sure that that thinking is embedded in the way we apply these systems. So that's how we should be thinking about smart city technology going forward. The book is called Dream States. And John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks a lot. So what are best practices when communities look to harness new technology or new ways of harnessing and utilizing data? Who's got it right? And what can we learn from certain success stories, some of which we've highlighted on this show? For that, we go to Martin Canning, Executive Director of Government Innovation at Evergreen. Martin, listeners to Future Fix will recognize the name uh, Community Solutions Network if they stick around for the credits. We've partnered with you for, for these special series episodes, but can you actually tell me a bit about uh, what the Community Solutions Network is, uh, how they came about, and, and sort of what the mandate is there? Sure. In essence, we help communities across Canada, municipal governments and local governments and Indigenous representatives connect in with partners and good ideas associated with data and technology approaches. Sometimes that world is referred to as smart cities. We prefer the concept of community solutions. We feel that that's a more accessible concept and one that resonates regardless of the size or type of your community in Canada. Do you have any examples of sort of replicable or scalable programs uh, from across Canada that you think kind of exemplify the the sort of solutions uh, that you're you're after? Most definitely. There, Canada is a nation of innovation. There's lots of great examples of community-led innovation as it relates to public sector and community solutions. That's a key facet, really, of good examples of replicable solutions, the idea of shared value. Traditionally, data and technology approaches I think, especially under the concept of smart cities, really have a commercial bias. Sometimes governments and communities aren't even involved in the solution space. So I think good examples of replicable solutions encompass the idea of shared value, which includes financial or economic value, but also has environmental and social facets that may have no commercial value whatsoever, but have a whole lot of social or community value wrapped into whatever the service product or process is being developed through this lens of innovation and technology. Great examples. One that comes to mind is a solution that the community, the town of Bridgewater in Nova Scotia has put together. It's known as Energize Bridgewater. Great name, great work. It's helping uh, reduce energy poverty through their community. There is an interconnected system of data collection associated with household levels of energy that is increasingly being managed and in creative ways at the community level, at the household level throughout their town to really maximize energy efficiency and sustainable approaches to neighborhood scale and town level energy investments. That's one example. It's most definitely replicable. There's even, I believe, some intellectual property associated with the investments. Another example, I I met with the a young, relatively young woman from Fredericton, New Brunswick, and her name leaves me right now, but what a great example. It's called Indigenous. 
And this is a, a, a mobile application, but also a technology that allows for access to buildings and locations through your mobile phone if you have any accessibility issues or mobility issues. This is an example of a social enterprise, not a business, but a nonprofit essentially providing really innovative solutions to mobility challenges. That's one that comes to mind in, in New Brunswick. It's important, to, I think, a really important juxtaposition today in Canada around innovative solutions that display shared value and that are driven at a community level. There's a great body of work uh, in Montreal. There's numerous facets to the Montreal, Montreal Smart Cities work, but sometimes it's referred to as Montreal in common, and they treat the city really as a, as a social and community laboratory around innovation. Very open and accessible for a number of nonprofits, community groups, as well as commercial actors to interact in experimental ways and practical ways around uh, smart city solutions or community solutions. So that would be a third, a little bit more complex, replicable solution. And to compare that to one of the country's more popular smart cities projects, Sidewalk Labs in Toronto that ended up failing. And when you think of uh, models, the Canadian model of smart cities or data and technology approaches or community solutions at the local level, a key facet that is exemplified, whether it's in Montreal and in Montreal and Common or Energized Bridgewater or the good work in New Brunswick with Indigenous or, or other numerous examples, is this idea of shared value, that Canadian examples of innovation often are exemplifying a place-based people-focused, human-centered design, shared value approaches to uh, rethinking how data and technology can help solve some of the problems in our communities, not as a panacea, but as a tool in the toolbox that is increasingly helpful and important in helping us solve these community city building problems. Um, but those are a few of replicable solutions. You mentioned sidewalk labs. Uh, it makes me yeah. wonder um, how the smart city conversation, uh, and I, I say smart city in quotes because, yeah. uh, as you say, yeah. you, you don't really use that term again. And I think it's fallen slightly out of favor at this point. You know, four years ago when we started this show, sidewalk labs was still a going concern. Uh, some people were very energized about it. Some people were very uh, wary about it. Uh, and we, we didn't really know what it would look like. As you said, it, it, it did fail and uh, it, we don't need to go into the how or the why. But, um, you know, in, in the last four years, how has the smart city so-called conversation changed in, in your opinion? Resident-driven, people-centric shared value approaches. That's what's changing, not just in Canada, but in the world. People and communities have, I think, fought to come into this agenda and effectively so, we're seeing it. Even though the term smart cities in Canada isn't uh, as big of a concept, I think, as it once was, maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, globally it is. Globally, that's a concept across Europe, across Asia, across all of the continents of the world, is still a term and concept that is increasingly front and center, increasingly resourced. There is substantial policy agendas evolving across the EU and across Asian governments and African governments and South American governments are really focusing in on smart cities policy and programs and investing in them. And the feature that's changing is moving away from purely commercial models of delivery 
to broader shared value models of delivery that include social value and and uh, environmental value and and maybe in many ways aren't even uh, financially viable in a pure commercial terms but are are delivering substantial public value or social value or public sector value in what are sometimes referred to as public sector markets so there are commercial actors no doubt still active in the smart city scene for sure, but the contribution of, to the innovation agenda at the local level is increasingly opening up to nonprofit actors, academic actors, the university or the what are sometimes called community campus projects seem to be increasing where the academic community is contributing to numerous new ideas and projects in communities in Canada. So I'd say in a sentence, it's, it's people-centric, human design, shared value approaches versus traditional commercial approaches to community solutions or data and technology solutions at the local level. Another thing that happened in the last four or five years, uh, almost half of it, perhaps exactly half of it, is is the global pandemic. And huge, much like COVID uh, taught us to uh, appreciate our, our public spaces in a way that maybe we had been taking them for granted or, or not feeling the the lack of them uh, in some cases as much as we did during lockdown phases. I think the pandemic also highlighted uh, sort of a lack of data and a lack of access to technology as we were trying to spread community awareness about the virus, uh, about how to keep people safe, about how to get vaccinations, trying to track how, uh, how it moved through communities. Would mm-hmm. you say that... Um, not to put a silver lining on it, because I think it was terrible, obviously, but uh, it, was it at least a catalyst for innovation, uh, uh, you know, in Canada and Canadian communities? In many ways, and, mo- and more true, that is more true for smaller, isolated, rural, remote, Indigenous communities in Canada versus mid-sized cities and larger urban centres. In a lot of large urban centres in Canada, you have a lot of capacity, a lot of resources. You have regional markets and provincial and and national markets that are integrated into a broader global economy, sometimes with greater established dynamics than smaller communities in Canada. So when it came to public sector markets and the approaches of local governments, COVID did no doubt catalyze all kinds of new, uh, I think, creative ways for governments to work with communities and residents and citizens, but also emphasize the need for greater capacity at local levels when it comes to the innovation agenda and data and technology approaches. There's the lens of service delivery, which is very important in new forms of public service delivery and municipal service delivery. But there's also the topic of innovation and trying things in new ways and the idea of government innovation and public sector or public market innovation. And COVID, I think, did indeed spur that. And there's a lot of investment, I think, flowing. That's no secret from the federal government for the last numerous years, but particularly over the now COVID era and the pandemic era or endemic era that we're in. So there's a lot of resources there. However, I would I would, I would argue in Canada, there is more emphasis required on some of the policy domains associated with data and technology approaches, the urban innovation agenda is ill-defined in our country. There's a lot of room in spite of the appetite and the energy at the local level 
to drive new forms of innovation. There's a lot of room for policy and programs to complement that appetite in Canada. I don't want to say there's a vacuum, but there is most definitely a relative lack of emphasis on policy and programs at the national and provincial levels in Canada, especially when you're reflecting on the European model, the Asian model, in from when you're looking at countries around the world and how much emphasis and resources are provided to local communities to help build and drive local urban innovation agendas and new approaches for government innovation. It's decent in Canada, but relatively speaking, there's a lot more room for activity by our, our national and, and, and provincial governments. It seems like governments at every level, be it the tiniest municipality to uh, to the yeah. federal government, they at least acknowledge that this is something, you know, that technological and data-driven solutions are something to be pursued. Uh, you know, everyone at least uh, is talking about the digital divide, the, the, so the problem of not everyone having access to reliable internet service when that's kind of table stakes to participate mm-hmm. in the world today. So there is movement. There are also concerns around privacy and uh, open data. And you don't want to jump headlong into something without knowing the consequences. But for you, what are your hopes for the future of cities in terms of the use of data and technology? Well, there's a dark side and there's a light side. And I'll stick to the light side. Right. When we're thinking about the future and where technology is often driving us, sometimes pulling us. But when it comes to cities and public sector markets and government innovation and community innovation in Canada and around the world, what I see and what many of us see and and are a part of uh, in different ways, whether it's policy and programs or actual projects, is not just an appetite, but a culture that is opening to allow for multi-sectoral partnerships like we haven't seen before and with nonprofit academia community and local government collaborating around innovative solutions related to local problems that is i think a a fundamental cultural shift that's taking place in this country but in countries around the world that are changing the models fundamentally around shared value. That is a concept that you'll hear me repeat a lot when I'm talking about smart cities, community solutions, the work at Evergreen, the way that we frame our programming, the way that our capacity supports are developed at Evergreen to work alongside local communities and projects. This idea of shared value really is a a, a changing feature in the way that local governments and communities and policymakers and programmers, that is government programmers, are thinking about this area of work. So I think that that's that when you when you think about the future and what the future holds, I think we're going to see not just traditional commercial actors working in the solution space, but we're seeing and going to see more nonprofit actors, social enterprise, uh, academia, institutes and and universities working with through campus community relations in really creative ways that Canadians have not yet seen. And so it's a really interesting dynamic. And it's also an interesting dynamic because there is no real politics when you get into the urban agenda, the urban innovation agenda and smart cities. There's no 
conservative perspective. There's no NDP perspective. There's no Green Party perspective. There's no liberal perspective. So it's it's an interesting moment and an exciting moment for those of us that work in this space in different ways because it's pre-politics, which allows for a certain dynamic to emerge regardless of your commitments ideologically, philosophically. That's a very unique feature. Not all worlds or domains of activity are like that. There's very few like that. And Smart Cities has that luxury of bringing together solution-oriented individuals from multiple sectors focused entirely on their communities and trying things differently, i.e. developing new forms of innovation. And that is when void of politics is very unique. And so that that's something about, I think, our future here in Canada, so far anyways, that is uh, very hopeful, different, exciting, and is leading to all kinds of new solutions at the community level that will be applied across our country, but increasingly uh, uh, globally, all kinds of actors internationally will be reflecting on the Canadian model. It is easy to be swept away by the promise of new technology. For as long as we've been around, human beings have fantasized about what the future holds. So many inventions and interventions, even simple ones, have resulted in quantum leaps forward, for better or worse, forever changing the way we live, communicate, and relate to the world around us. But the real technological success stories we've seen on this show seem to be the ones that put community first. Things to help realize existing, long-term goals, or to address new challenges like climate change and the pandemic that represent a threat to the life we knew and enjoyed. Data and technology are tools. There's not inherent morality in a tool, no good or bad. It depends on how you use it. And there's nothing wrong with looking to new tools or new ways of doing things to help our communities thrive. But when contemplating your future, understanding who you are today and what you value now is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Our content consultant is Sanchita Rajvanchi. See you in the future. Thank you.